From the Global Compact Network Australia, I'm Corinne Shaw, and this is The Pressures Report. This week on The Pressures Report, we're exploring the Science-Based Target Initiative and how it's bringing us one step closer to meeting the Global Paris Agreement. We will seek to understand what drives businesses to setting these targets, and we will ask what innovations and technologies are being deployed to help accelerate the transition to a low-carbon economy. Joining us to unpack these questions is Alex Farsan, Global Lead of the Science-Based Target Initiative with WWF. Welcome to The Pressures Report, and thank you, Alex, for joining me. Hi, Corinne. Yeah, thanks very much for giving me a chance to talk today. Not a problem. So you are currently based in Paris. How have things been over there? Because I know that Macron has slowly started to ease some of those lockdown measures. And I saw on the news the other day, um, a number of, well, actually quite a lot of the Parisians flocking down to all of the parks. So how has it been over the last couple of weeks and months actually? Yeah, it's actually been um, a great relief to see things come back to, I guess, a resemblance of normal. Um, mm -hmm. We live in the north uh, east of Paris, close to a big park called Butchemont, and uh, we're directly at the entrance of the park. So we have once again become a thoroughfare for <laughs> everybody getting out some sun. And it, uh, while it is still a little bit bizarre, having gone through lock months of lockdown and becoming slightly nervous about people around you, it does feel nice that um, things are returning to normal to some extent. Oh, that's nice. Um, I know that my, my mom lives in Paris and she's absolutely appreciated the, her newfound freedom. So it's good to hear that it's starting to get a little bit more rosy over there in Paris. Um, so last year we met and you led two of our science-based target initiative workshops in Melbourne and in Sydney. And we spent a fair amount of time together and then we saw each other again very briefly in New York at the um, Climate Summit that was that was held in September. But I realized I actually know very little about you. And so I just wanted to know just a bit more about how you got into this specific space and what are some of the things that drive you? Sure, yeah, H happy to try and give a bit of an overview of my background and how I got to this point. Um, so yeah, my name's uh, Alex Farzan. I originally, originally grew up in Germany and really started getting involved with environmental issues um, after high school, I would say. And uh, it was a general curiosity, I suppose. Uh, I think the more you learned about environmental issues, the more you were surprised that we didn't take them more serious. And as I, as I like to say to friends, it seems like the most common sense thing to fix is not undermining our basis for life on this planet um, and um, started moving a direction academically. So my undergrad and my uh, grad degree were both around environmental management and um, environmental regulation and um, quickly started owning in on climate change as perhaps the, the issue that I thought was defining for, for our generation in some ways. Um, when I was studying, something called the Stern Review came out, which was a major study in the 2000s that um, I believe for the first time took stock of the costs that we were going to face from climate change. Obviously, you can't quantify all the damage that 
come from climate change, but it did an attempt of that. And the conclusion was um, that it was going to be significantly better for the world. We were going to be significantly better off if we were going to take early action on climate change, rather suffering the impacts. So I started moving in the direction more and more. And after my studies, uh, started working for an organization called the Carbon Trust um, in the UK, which is a, a say a think tank and consultancy around climate change and the transition to low carbon economy. And I became very interested in the role that the private sector could play in addressing climate change. Obviously, a lot of companies are um, associated with a large share of global emissions, but they also have a unique ability to innovate and to drive emission reductions. So I became very interested in this sort of um, this kind of tension between this strong responsibility, but also this ability of being part of the solution. And after having spent uh, seven years with the Carbon Trust, uh, advising companies on strategies to reduce their emissions and um, how they can fit into a wider successful business strategy uh, in London, in India, and, and then in, in Germany, I really identified a specific concept that I thought was very promising because I started advising companies on it, which are science-based targets. And that then led me to join WWF um, in their Paris office, where I now lead WWF's work on something called the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which, um, which yeah, promotes these targets to companies. And I'm sure I'm going to say a little bit more about that later. No, we absolutely will. And because we're, we're going to focus in on this initiative and, and what it's achieved and, and what it hopes to achieve moving forward. But before we get into the sort of nuts and bolts of that, I wanted to ask you about some of the terminology that's often used or associated when we're talking about climate change or mitigation or the initiative. And so I know these are quite basic questions, but they often crop up in discussions or on within articles or in debates. And so I just wondered if you could just give us a brief understanding of what it means when someone says net zero or absolute zero or carbon neutrality. So let's start with those three, just so that we have a good grounding of what they mean. Yes, very happy to, to try and explain it. Perhaps it isn't quite so simple, mm -hmm. um, but I'll, I'll try to give uh, a, a short answer. So those really came um, became very fashionable over the last few years after the, 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 the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the kind of leading global entity that collates all climate science and um, gives us kind of a, a condensed insight into where we are in terms of a changing climate and what's required to address climate change. And the special report 1.5C that was released in October 2019 really drove home one idea, which is that we need to get to a point where we stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere because climate change is only going to stop increasing, it stop becoming worse when we stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. And that point in time was um, prominently called net zero in, um, in that report. Um, notably, the idea that we should reach net zero emissions on a global level by 2050, the, the very latest. Um, to stay within 1.5 C of warming, which is the, the, the kind of the ambitious goal under the Paris Agreement. 
And um, the net is an interesting word because it describes not necessarily that we completely stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, for example, by burning fossil fuels, but that we could take action to remove an equal amount of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere, therefore adding a net amount of zero. And uh, on a global level, that essentially means that whenever we do have remaining emissions to the atmosphere from, for example, aviation or other sectors that are now looking to be more difficult to um, completely eliminate our emissions from, we will have to take actions that sequester carbon or remove carbon or extract carbon, however you want to frame it, um, from the atmosphere and store it permanently. So the most prominent technology for that are trees. I think that's the, the that's where um, a lot of the focus has been now that if you if you grow and protect um, if you forests, then they would sequester carbon and remove it from the atmosphere. But there's some other technologies that you could also apply. So this balance between emissions and removals is what's called net zero. And if you break that down to company level, that equally means that a company promises to eliminate its aggregation of emissions that come from its um, operations and its value chain. Absolute zero is another part of this equation where you basically take out the netting part. So absolute zero simply means that you don't add any emissions to the atmosphere anymore. And there's no removals necessary and we will need removals anyways, because at some point we will have to clean up some of the mess that we've made by adding more greenhouse gas to the atmosphere. But if you say somebody's aiming for absolute zero, the idea is that they actually just stop adding any emissions to the atmosphere full stop. And in many ways, that is the most desirable outcome that we could go for. Um, and then finally, carbon neutrality. It's an interesting term because in, in the scientific literature, if you look at, for example, the IPCC reports, there isn't much of a difference between carbon neutrality and net zero. It really means that for, for the one greenhouse gas carbon emission, CO2, that we don't add any net CO2 emissions to the atmosphere. In the corporate context, it's become really um, synonymous with the practice of offsetting. Um, the idea that you have remaining emissions from your operations or even within your wider value chain and that you then can invest into projects from carbon markets that would um, have an impact that would roughly equate the amount of emissions that you still add. So you're, you're basically investing into projects that try and control some of the damage that you're doing while still emitting emissions. Um, it's, uh, it's been around for several years and it's, yeah, it's, it's a controversial practice to say the least. It is, and I'm sure we'll, we'll hopefully touch upon that later. Um, but then I had, and you've actually explained that really clearly and simply, so, so well done for doing that. But the next bit was around scope one, two, and three. Can you just very briefly describe the distinctions between those three? Because this is something that we'll need to discuss um, as we're elaborating upon the initiative. Yeah, happy to. So companies take stock of their impact on the climate through greenhouse gas inventories. They essentially count the emissions that they have typically in a given year, so the annual greenhouse gas inventories, um, and they count up the emissions in that year. 
um, and scopes one, two, and three basically create three different buckets within that inventory, and they're differentiated by how directly these emissions occur within a company's operations or business. So scope one emissions are the most direct ones, and um, that means uh, emissions from your direct from your operations, for example, from from burning fossil fuels or from having process emissions. So if you break that down to the level of a, a household, to simplify it, um, scope one emissions would be if you have a gas hop or if you have gas heating, the gas you burn to, um, uh, to, to, yeah, <laughs> to heat or to cook, um, the emissions from that gas would be your scope one emissions, as well as if you own a car, the gas that you burn, if you burn, these days I should say, if you uh, own a fossil fuel driven car, um, then the emissions from that car. Scope two emissions are um, still very closely linked to your operations. Um, they're emissions from electricity and other energy that's produced not in your operations, but consumed within them. So basically electricity you buy, district heating, steam, etc. And again, for a household level, that would be simply electricity you buy. And then scope three is the, the wide universe of other emissions that happen in your value chain for which you're responsible in some sense, but over which, uh, but which not to say di directly occur from your activities. So um, that could be emissions from all the goods and services that procure. So if you're producing business, all the raw materials, all the machinery, et cetera, you buy, there will be emissions associated with that. There will be emissions associated with the transport of those. There is emissions associated with things like business travel. Um, there is emissions if you, if you produce products that use energy, for example, um, if, for example, a car manufacturer, then there's emissions associated with the use of your products. So all these different types of categories, there's 15 overall, um, are related to your emissions. Uh, I, I just scope three emissions, apologies. So for a household, again, to just bring it back to that, um, this would be the emissions associated with all the food, for example, that you buy and consume in your household. Those will be emissions associated with your holidays. If you fly uh, intercontinental, that will be a scope three emission of your household, etc. So all of these are emissions that your actions and activities are related to, but they are for reasons of accounting and um, several others are distributed in these different scopes. Now that again is that I found that really clear. So thank you for for outlining that and bringing it down to a household level, which I think makes it a little bit more tangible. Um, in terms of the, and this kind of brings me now to the initiative. So the science-based target initiative was set up a couple of years ago. Can you explain what that is and and what was sort of the thinking behind that and what's been achieved to date? Yes, I'm happy to try and cover that briefly <laughs> a lot happened since uh, it was i think started to be launched in 2014 um I, full disclosure i haven't really been around since the beginning as i mentioned uh, this was actually something that inspired me quite a lot um mm -hmm. what the science was doing so i've joined around 2018 and um, but my my best understanding of where this came from mm -hmm. and having observed it from somebody that it was advising companies is that i think within the in the early 2010s the latest, companies were really starting to take climate action serious as part of their responsibilities as corporate citizens. And many had started to kind of um, 
take account of their emissions, uh, the carbon footprinting, um, and to report them annually. And we're even starting to set these emission reduction targets. It became clear that we need to globally reduce our emissions and that companies had to play a part in that. So they were really looking for guidance on what is good or even best practice on these corporate climate targets. Um, there were really high level questions. So what is, what is a good target even look like? How much should I reduce to contribute my, my, my share to global climate action efforts? Um, this was around the time that the Paris Agreement was formed. So we are really talking about limiting global warming to two degrees Celsius to 1.5 degrees Celsius. What does that mean for me as a company? What do I need to do? Um, which emissions should I include? Uh, as I just laid out uh, when explaining scope one, two, and three, there's a lot of different things to consider. So what should I reduce? What should I focus on? Um, and then really, I think uh, guiding clear questions for companies is how do I avoid being accused of greenwashing? Because a lot of commitments came out and then uh, companies, I think, were a bit surprised about the backlash they sometimes got because they felt like they were trying to do the right thing. Um, so there was this need for understanding what was a good target for emission reductions. And the SBTI really was set up to, to build on the best available science to provide this guidance, to give companies a clear steer of what is required to be a responsible business, how much should they reduce their emissions to contribute to global climate goals, and then ultimately to recognize those companies um, that follow this guidance and that are taking the required actions. And um, I think we've come a long way in this. The SBTI essentially does um, three different things. We, we develop guidance and methods and tools, as I just explained, to kind of steer companies in the right direction. We promote science-based targets by highlighting companies that are showing leadership by, by setting these targets. We, um, we also promote it by, I guess, popularizing the, the, the concept with other stakeholders. For example, investors are increasingly interested in understanding whether the companies they invest in are doing enough and recognize the risks and climate uh, targets like science-based targets are often a good indicator whether they address some of those transition risks. And we uh, promote it with, with policymakers. So you can see that uh, a lot of governments are also seeing the private sector as a critical lever for achieving climate targets. So the Japanese Ministry of Environment, for example, has their own target for how many Japanese companies should set science-based targets. The, the, the Finnish government just, just linked bailouts under the, the current stimulus. Uh, funding that's coming in the wake of the COVID crisis um, to having a science-based target. So we're promoting the idea with different stakeholders. And finally, we have an independent assurance mechanism where we basically help companies understand whether the nitty gritty of their climate targets really meets best practice. So companies can submit the targets to the SPTI um, and we will assess whether or not they they have a science-based target as defined by a, a rule book that we've basically created, um, the Science-Based Targets Initiatives Criteria. And on that road, I think we've made really strong progress. Uh, we now have almost 900 uh, companies that have committed to setting science-based target. Um, over 360 of them have already had their targets approved from our end. And those are really a lot of big companies. So 
um, I think collectively just their scope one and two emissions account for um, for emissions that are larger than the emissions of France and Spain's economies combined. And if you take into account the scope three emissions, then we've got emissions covered about the size of the emissions of the European Union. So we're really getting to a level of scale that matters. Um, as you as you can tell, I can talk about this for, forever. So maybe I'll stop here. And um, yeah. You can definitely talk about this for absolutely hours. I had the absolute pleasure of hearing you last year. So I know that um, you are an absolute encyclopedia when it comes to science-based targets. But I guess the next question that I wanted to, to sort of cover, um, I know that globally you said we have close to 900. I think it's around, I think it was close to 879 when I checked this morning. But I've been amazed to see that number just increasing on an almost daily basis. And I joined um, and support this, I supported, started supporting, sorry, this initiative about 18 months ago with WWF in Australia. And we've definitely seen a huge increase in the number of companies that are either wanting to set a target or in the process of, or even asking questions about it. And you touched upon this in your, in your answer just previously, but what do you think are some of the other drivers? Because I definitely feel that I'm seeing an acceleration of companies that are setting these targets. Yeah, I, I have to say that we're probably positively surprised even ourselves how much momentum has been building over the past six months. And you, there's probably a lot of reasons you could give. I think one of it is just that we're starting to see a large amount of stakeholders picking up this idea that climate science should inform our actions and becoming amplifiers for this idea. So um, you've already mentioned that yourself came to this and I think we're really seeing that we've, we really have this growing network of allies that understand the power of this, this simple idea of following the science in terms of uh, guiding your actions. And they are promoting it uh, worldwide, um, engaging with companies, taking the time to explain. Companies are themselves starting to see that they have to take action um, more and more, for example, through the Fridays for Future movement. People are confronted with the idea of climate change and the need for climate action um, in the media, but often also at home. There's definitely been a growing number of, of executives that you meet that suddenly have an interest in climate action. And that's often because they talked about it uh, at the dinner table with their children who become who are becoming incredibly knowledgeable about the risks of climate change and what's required to address those. And then um, the financial sector is, is really uh, waking up to the risk that's embedded in financial markets and perhaps the, in many cases unpriced risk of climate change and uh, on the one hand the, the kind of the devastation that we face uh, on our economy if we don't address climate change but also how markets are going to very swiftly going to change and be disrupted if we are making this transition to a low carbon economy and suddenly very many sectors just have to really rethink their business models. So there's really this, this, I would say, this, this combination of factors that reinforce each other, where civil society, investors, businesses themselves within their supply chains um, are all driving this idea forward, knowing that they have to collaborate widely and that this is only going to work if we have a broad social movement and a broad, a broad agreement that we need to 
collectively move in this direction. So I really think it's a, 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 a reflection of this starting to happen and um, the topic becoming just front of mind for many people. It's interesting, this, this idea around the collective um, action, because we're, we're definitely starting to see that far more in Australia. And that actually brings me to, to starting to think about and wanted to ask you about the, this concept of around innovations and technologies. Because when I speak to companies across Australia, whether it be Dexis or Fraser's Property or Australia Post that recently set their targets or Westpac or Woolworths and, and many more, but in many cases, the, they've had to come up with quite interesting or innovative steps in order to be able to make um, or to set these targets. Do you have any examples of companies that have had to really go out on a limb to, to meet the targets that they've set? Yes, I, I think it's, it's early days for many of the targets, but you'd really see a lot of innovation um, in, in different ways, I would say. I mean, some of that innovation is really technological, uh, so you see uh, businesses like Orsted in Denmark. They were formerly called uh, Danish Oil and Natural Gas, Dong Energy, and were a heavily fossil fuel-based business, um, the largest power utility in Denmark. And they've made a complete pivot in their business model over the last decade or so, um, moving to become the largest offshore wind company in the world. And I think by 2025, when they're going to have completed um, transition, they, excuse me, they're going to have reduced their their emissions per kilowatt hour of electricity produced by 98%. So there's really this complete shift in technology. There's also a lot of businesses that are starting to review their business models. So IKEA, um, largest furniture company in the world, they are have really ambitious targets where they work with their designers, their suppliers to really start reducing the emissions of each and every one of their products from the cradle, all the raw materials resources to the grave where they um, where you look at disposal and the end of life. And you start seeing them experimenting with, um, for example, schemes like renting out furniture. So really innovation on the business model. And then I think there's just a lot of innovation in terms of how businesses think about climate change within their strategies. So particularly the scope three targets where you start taking accountability for emissions that go beyond your immediate control because they are with your suppliers, they are with your customers, they are linked to the emissions embedded in the raw materials that you buy and just start shaping your strategy and around these reduction levers that you have. So you really see that moving into different parts of the business. And I would say that's another element of innovation is that we've heard from many companies that sustainability and climate change used to sort of sit within the business in a support function, EHS, environmental health and safety, et cetera. And as companies were starting to wrap their head around what was necessary to achieve these ambitious, highly ambitious climate change targets, they were starting to move that function into the strategy teams and really recognizing that this needs to sit at the heart of how the business plans its future and cannot just be a supporting function that then picks up the scraps after the strategy has already been set out. Um, and then you see a lot of the other technological change like electric vehicles that companies uh, use or, or even produce. And really it's highly dependent on, on the sectors. And I think it, it speaks to how 
how inter intricately linked climate change is with all the different economic activities we have that you see this wide range of innovation. In financial markets, you see um, investors and asset holders or asset owners really wrapping their head around how they can take action on to, to fulfill their own targets. How can they engage with the businesses they're invested in? How can they um, send the right signals within the financial system? That's really interesting because I've been working in climate change for over 10 years and the, the narrative within that space is often very doom and gloom. And yet when I look at the types of companies that are setting these targets, I find it incredibly inspiring. And it means that when I speak to companies across Australia, there are far more positive news stories as opposed to negative ones. And so I think this concept of the types of innovations and technologies that they're using and being able to talk about those with other companies and with government here has been really important. But on that note, I just wanted to ask you about um, the offset piece, because when I talk to companies and I, I talk about all the these companies that are the, setting these targets, one of the questions they always ask me is, why can't we use offsets? And so I was hoping you could explain that to us. So yeah, very happy to touch on that. And this is where I think the conversation becomes quite complex quite quickly and can be quite technical. So I'm going to try and steer towards the, a, a bit of a high level view on the, on the topic. Um, and I think one of the, one of the frameworks that, that's very helpful here is something called the mitigation hierarchy, long established in environmental action for, for, for many decades now. And the idea really is, is that you want to avoid and reduce your impact before you start looking at any ideas of compensation. A variation of the mitigation hierarchy, for example, I think is very, is very um, familiar to people from the waste hierarchy that you want to avoid, reuse, recycle, et cetera, et cetera. And that it's best to aim to avoid before you start looking at, um, at, at recycling. Very similarly for, for emissions, you should take responsibility of your own emissions. And those are accompanied scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. This is how you sort of define what your emissions are and reduce those at the rate that we understand to be required. One thing that's often misunderstood, I think, is that nobody is saying that there is no positive impact from offsetting. A lot of really worthwhile projects are being financed through through kind of money that's raised through offsetting credits. We, we certainly need to achieve a lot of these things. Uh, we do need to protect tropical rainforests. We do need to provide low carbon um, energy solutions to, to populations in many markets. Th these are really worthwhile projects and so are the other social and environmental benefits that you can achieve with those. But we need to do both at the same time and a company should not let up on their responsibility to drive their emission reductions, and we understand how much that needs to be from science-based targets, to then um, invest into these um, offsetting credits. There's also some issues that are quite technical around accounting. It's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges in the way that you account for organizational emissions and you account for offsetting credits. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but there's essentially these two broader ideas. One of them is that in terms of mitigation hierarchy, companies need to focus first on their own emissions. And then by all means, they should start investing into worthwhile, high quality, sustainable carbon finance projects. Um, but they shouldn't 
do one instead of the other. Um, and then there's the second idea that there's some real technical challenges of assuming that a carbon credit from a project actually offsets the same amount of emissions. Just because they have the same unit in terms of carbon, CO2 or CO2 equivalent, it doesn't mean that they completely neutralize those emissions. And I think I'm going to stop here because it then really quickly starts getting into wonky <laughs> greenhouse gas accounting stuff. <laughs> no problem. No, that actually makes a lot of sense. So I'll try to, to remember that next time I'm asked the questions. But before we finish off, I just had one sort of final question before we get into the last two little ones that we always ask our speakers. And that's really top line around what what is this the vision, I guess, for the science-based target initiative? Where where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? What is the evolution of this initiative going to look like? That is a very good question. Uh, so from the outset, the SBTI has really always had the vision of making science-based target setting standard business practice. So the idea that really all businesses should have science-based climate targets and that it becomes a, a, new, a new normal so to say, for business staffers. And we're really still working towards this. As much success as we've had in driving the uptake of science-based targets, it, it, 900 companies obviously isn't all companies. So it's a lot, of, a lot of work that we need to still do. It's also, I think, worth noting that it's not a geographically homogenous uptake. No. So a lot of, uh, a lot of companies in emerging markets aren't really, uh, haven't really taken this up as much as some of the developed markets. So mm-hmm. I, I really would say the vision for the next five, 10 years is the same that we've had from the outset of making the standard business practice. Businesses in usual should be having a science-based target. So we can go away from considering business as usual as a negative. Yeah. And do you think, so I have one last little question. Do you think that through this pandemic, do you think we'll start seeing an uptake, an even greater increase in the number of companies signing up? Or what do you think the impact will be of this pandemic? It's a little bit early days to judge that, I would say. We have seen uh, encouraging signs that at least this this grown momentum that we've had over the last six months hasn't really slowed down, slowed down. So we still see a good number of increased commitments and companies getting the targets approved. It's not growing at the moment either. And um, I think by and large, the hope is that this is going to continue driving awareness for, for the, the urgency to address crises on a global level in a collaborative way. We've mm-hmm. seen encouraging signs of businesses speaking out on behalf of a green stimulus. So the idea that your recovery should actually lead you to somewhere where you recover better. You don't just get back to where you were before. You use this as an opportunity to get to a better place. And businesses have really latched onto this idea that this crisis can be an opportunity for all its horrific impacts we've seen on people, but that it can be a chance to rethink some of the ways that we're doing. And I don't know if that's going to happen, but we're surely going to do our best to, to, to make sure that it does. Now, I think you're right. And it's definitely a live conversation in Australia, but also globally. We've heard a lot of speakers, a lot of, um, I guess, leaders coming out and talking about how do we move away from business as usual. And I think the science-based target initiative is an important step, particularly as we're talking about transition to net zero carbon economy by 2050. 
this is definitely an area that I think companies can latch onto. It's tangible. It's something they can actually work on. And so I hope that we continue to see that momentum growing um, globally, but also here in Australia. And I know that the GCNA and WWF will continue to work with companies as we start seeing that, that movement um, growing. But we always ask, before we finish off, we always ask these two last little questions to each of our speakers. And I always really enjoy hearing their answers. So the first one is, what keeps you up at night? I think a, a very recent thing that has, has, I'm not sure it's kept me up at night, but has been really on my mind is seeing how we really stopped our lives and to some extent the economy in its tracks and how little impact relatively does had on global emissions. Um, it really made me recognize how, how profound the changes are that we would need to achieve. Um, so as a reference, I think the, the estimates vary quite widely, but um, I think we're, we're expecting to have somewhere between 10 and 15% of emissions reductions globally this year. Um, compared to last year. And again, given how, of a, how much of a worldwide phenomena these lockdowns were, it's, it's been remarkable to me to see how little of a dent we made in global emissions. And that doesn't even include questions around how much more um, deforestation we're seeing, et cetera, et cetera, because we don't have the data for it yet. So there's just a, yeah, a big question mark suddenly about the the, how quickly we can get emissions down. And it's, in a lot of ways, I guess, keeps me up, but also has renewed our focus or my focus on driving this transition. I have to say, I have been really surprised at how little of a dent that has made. I was expecting it to be far more wide reaching given the sheer volume of, of countries and, and companies and industries that have basically stood at a standstill for so long. Um, so that would absolutely keep me up at night. But the last sort of little question that I have for you is around uh, if you could solve one pressure that society is facing and you had just one night, what would it be and why? I don't know if this would be counted as a pressure, but I really would love to take out our deep coding for tribalism and seeing seeing people define everything as us against them and in group out group thinking it really makes everything a lot more difficult than it should have to be and i think that that really is underlying a lot of the difficulties we're seeing in taking action on things that that seem like they're obvious and seem like there's a win-win there for everybody involved and then you, you, you start seeing how, how fractions form and tribal sides form and the discussion moves away from the actual subject and yeah, towards, towards a, a tension between different fractions. I think given what we are seeing at the moment, that's um, quite a fitting response. Um, but Alex, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us on the Pressures Report today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Great, well, thank you so much for, for having me. I'm really happy to have a chance to talk a little bit about science-based targets. Um, as, as you know well, I, I, I love to do that. And um, yeah, thank you very much for, for your great work in Australia and, and the, great, the great momentum we've seen from the UN Global Compact over the last years. It's really been one of the big reasons, I think, why we've seen the search. Thank you so much again for coming. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for joining the Pressures Report today. 
And thank you to our listeners for joining us for today's episode of The Pressures Report. You can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review. Join us next week as we understand what it takes to be an ethical business with Audet Excel. I'm Corinne Shaw, and that's all from The Pressures Report. The Pressures Report is a podcast by the Global Compact Network Australia, produced by Matt Orr Productions, with music by Jake Amy.